2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This is Richard Osijo, a host on New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. And this interview is being done in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. Joining me today is Shauna Trench and Edward Snyder both of whom are Associate Professor of Anthropology and colleagues of mine at John Jay College of Criminal Justice of the City University of New York. And they're going to talk to us today about their recent book, What the Signs Say, Language, Gentrification and Placemaking in Brooklyn, about how public language can create place and how place is experienced through public texts like signage. Sean and Edward, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks for having us. It's really great to be here. Thank
3: you, Richard. It's a pleasure. All
1: right, great. So why don't you just start by telling us briefly about your own professional background, your prior work, and also as a married couple, how you decided to work on this project and write this book together?
0: Um, Well, I guess I'll start. Ladies first, right? So... um, Um, I am a sociolinguist. I have um, my PhD in Hispanic linguistics, actually, um, from the University of Pittsburgh. And my first um, body of work was on Latinas narratives of of domestic violence in the sociolegal system. So I felt really fortunate to come to John Jay to be able to work at a school of justice um, since my work was really oriented towards justice. And one of the things that was interesting to me in that... um, body of work was that even at the narrative level, people had this need to standardize language and uh, institutions really wanted to give credit to this notion of like a, a, a well-formed narrative, um, got legal credibility, if you will. And um, I've kind of carried that through all of my work, this idea that there are other valuable ways of speaking that aren't necessarily institutional standards um, and this project has a lot of that in there, so we can talk about that later. But um, I'll leave it there and let Ed introduce himself.
3: Well, thank you, Shauna. Um, so I'm a political anthropologist, and I'm interested in power, identity, and social justice in general. Um, I also got my PhD in cultural anthropology at the University of Pittsburgh, and, and that is where I, I met Shauna. And that's where we became a married couple. You know, We talk about that later. Um, I studied post-socialist societies in the area of environmental activism uh, to start with my dissertation research in Slovakia, and then I moved from there into studying gender violence, policing, law, and eventually human trafficking in field sites in Kazakhstan and in Bosnia, among other sites in Eastern Europe. And my work generally has a common thread of looking at societies in transition which actually brings you know me right up to the place where I live and work, and, and that is Brooklyn, uh, New York. And uh, I'll leave it at that.
0: Well, we, we got here. You also asked how we kind of came to work together on this project because we had never worked on a project before. We both had our different areas. Um, and we moved to Brooklyn because Ed got a job at John Jay College, um, in 2003. And I was able to take a leave from Florida State University, where I worked at the time. Um, and we had a baby. Uh, so I spent a lot of time strolling him around, trying to meet friends, and, uh, and just realizing that I had never been in a place like Brooklyn, New York before. And um, there's this story that we tell in the book, where Ed came home from class one day, and he said, I told my students today that Brooklyn was the kind of place where people crammed as many words as possible on a storefront sign. And he said that they all laughed. And as a linguist, I was like, that's really interesting because I'd never seen signage like we saw in Brooklyn before. So then I started taking photographs of it. And um, and I couldn't stop. And uh, I kind of dragged Ed in on the project and said, you know, there's something here we really should look at. And you should bring your cultural anthropological lens To this. So that's kind of how we got started on this project and that early in
3: 2000. And and, and to segue a little into that as well, um, I I actually was doing work in in Bosnia at the time and with uh, small children at home. um, You know, that it it seemed like maybe I shouldn't be doing a lot of this field research far away. And so a colleague of ours, um, Anru Lee, suggested that maybe the two of us could study a new. Project and do it in Brooklyn, and that was called the Atlantic Yards uh, project. At the time, um, you know, we hadn't really thought about studying the, the city systematically itself. Although we we definitely noticed our surroundings and were thinking of of where we lived as a field site, just as an experience. Um, I, I've lived in many different urban settings, and I have to tell you that when I came to Brooklyn, I had never lived here before, and in fact, when we moved here, I had never visited the borough before that. And um, Richard, I know that you are actually from the, the area, and it's interesting. Maybe we can talk a little bit about our different perspectives and how we approach that, because I know you've done work here uh, in the city as well. So um, just in, in terms of setting this up, when I, when I made that comment to students, I was beginning to realize that I was a participant observer in a new field site and shauna's expertise in linguistics um really got me thinking about what how is language playing in a larger process uh, which we call gentrification so um at that point our field work was really informal isn't that right shauna it was
0: kind on the of the signage it was uh, right yeah. on the signage it was but then in 2010 we took our our colleague on uh, suggestion, and we um, started to study the Barclay Center and that redevelopment by Four City Ratner that got introduced in 2003. Um, but we got, we submitted a, an NSF that was awarded in 2010, and so then we really studied started studying that process. Um, and then it was it was a matter of merging the two, using our ethnographic interviews from that um, from that study to inform what the sign said. Uh, And what they meant to inform our our analysis of that. And so they kind of came together in a, a, I don't know, in a new iteration of of what began as very different types of research.
3: And just to add a little bit about for for your listeners, um, the uh, Atlantic Yards project was uh, touted as one of the largest redevelopment projects um, in New York City. Uh, in its history, I, I don't believe that's true anymore. I believe Hudson Yards is is the largest. But at the time, it was quite controversial and um, very much a symbol of um, how the borough was changing in a very rapid way. Uh, but it's it cited it in between the neighborhoods of Fort Greene and Prospect Heights, uh, also touching a little bit on the neighborhood of Park Slope as well as um, – uh, Crown Heights, I think. And uh, that, that area is actually quite small. And we started to really start, start to do a multi-method study of the changes in that area. And through, through that process, the signage that we were always seeing as something unique to Brooklyn um, was always coming out in our data. And we didn't necessarily know what it meant at the time, but we did know that it was significant. And that it was something that you certainly noticed if you looked.
0: No, you couldn't really and, miss it.
1: <laughs> right. And you, you start the book with a couple of pretty specific examples, one of which is based at or really close to the Atlantic Yards Project. So you talk about an entrepreneur opening up a bagel shop near downtown downtown Brooklyn. And this is in 2007 when the Atlantic Yards Project was still in the works And he names it Arena Bagels and Bialis, and he's anticipating what was going to be the basketball arena, which everybody perceived as the center of this project. Eventually, it was named the the Barclays Center. And as you said, this was a very controversial project with local residents protesting its scale, its use of public funds the idea of government overreach into private property, and they didn't even like this entrepreneur naming his bagel shop to recognize the future arena, and so he eventually changes it to Area Bagels and Bialis. And then in the other example, in the introduction, about a decade later, a woman opens up an upscale restaurant called Summerhill without clear signage in Crown Heights, a neighborhood not too far from where the Atlantic Yards project was being developed, uh, Crown Heights being a, a gentrifying low income, majority black neighborhood. And she opens it in a space that still had bullet holes in one of its walls. And she didn't just keep the holes there, she promoted them in interviews and on social media, perhaps as some kind of symbol of authenticity of the space or the neighborhood or what whatever. And local residents, People who have very different associations with gun violence protested the restaurant and its use of the holes out of anger. And eventually she covers them up. Now These are really vivid examples, both from different parts of Brooklyn undergoing some related changes. We'll come back to them in greater detail a little later on. But tell us what the importance of signs are just in general for understanding these varieties of urban change.
0: So it's, it's, you know, I I love these two examples in the context of this um, massive redevelopment project, because it really shows all of the different players um, and ourselves included. Uh, We moved here in 2003, kind of, um, you know, not, not at the beginning by any stretch of the imagination of, of the gentrification process of Brooklyn, which of course began long before that, you know, decade and a half, at least maybe two decades before that. But, but, you know, there were big and small moves and we've, Think about it. We have a paper that we haven't published yet, where we talk about big and small moves in the gentrification process and in the process of placemaking. And people, you know, think that signage maybe is um, not important or insignificant, but this the signage is one of those really visible and tangible signs of gentrification um, and and of what a place is becoming or in in the uh, you know, in the pre gentrification setting, it is of what a place is. And they're not just um, commercial spaces, right? We, um, we had a a discussion with um, Elizabeth Chin, uh, who is an anthropologist. And she, when we were telling her about this, she said that these are, you know, storefronts are profoundly political spaces. And that was something that, um, that we started to think about when we started to operationalize what, what indeed they were saying and how they were making place.
3: And and so when we started to really systematically gather photographs of signage, and it was something that Shauna was doing kind of constantly in her uh, going around and, and just living life, but also as a, as a researcher. And then as we were doing the Atlantic Yards uh, ethnography and interviews with people, no matter where we would go, we would we would record um, storefronts and and just. As, as my original joke to students um, revealed something, I, I believe, emically important, in other words, from that native's point of view, they understood that what I was commenting on was a type of signage that was normal, yet not really like other types of signage. And so when we looked at the data, we started to realize that there were essentially to sign types and those types each represented a different brooklyn and um the first one we called old school because when we asked the students hey well you know what what are you talking about what kind of sign is that with a lot of words crammed on it they themselves kind of named it and referred to it as such and and they used the term old school kind of in in all of its um you know, uh, sociological meanings in terms of referring to the past, but also having a respect for the past, like a like an origin with some kind of significance. And uh, the other type of sign, we we didn't really know what to call it because when we first started to look at the at the uh, what was being represented uh, linguistically and semiotically, um, we we were a little bit at a loss as, as to what it was, but in a nutshell, these new signs that we were seeing practically had no text on them at all. And in the book, we, we show a few examples of, of those sign sign types. And, and also in the old school example, some signs had as many as, you know, 36 to 40, 60 words on them. (laughs) And, and, and it was pretty, pretty standard. However, um, when we took a deeper dive um, as scholars, um, and, and Shauna can say a little bit more about this in terms of a linguistic approach, we started to see other features about each sign type. And, and that you know, that kind of really started us thinking about the meaning of how text is read, how it's, how it's um, engaged with. Did people notice? Um, did they, did, were they seeing what we were seeing? Um, and so, you know, we we started out with with an, a kind of an unknown experience that we felt was significant. But then, when you put the data together, we we definitely see something very clear. So I don't know. Maybe Shauna, would, would you like to run through the the features of each um, each type of sign?
0: Well, first, I wanted to just say that um, you know that these two examples of Summerhill and Arena Area Bagels um, really. Um, get at this idea that people do care what the signs say, right? So there's, there's like two different things that we talk about in the book. One is that, that people think that signs are mundane and unimportant. And then there's these two examples where people, you know, protested. I mean, they, they actually took these, um, store owners to task, um, because because they it was important the way that they were making place the way that they were connecting themselves to place was important to the community and so that's one of the reasons why we start out with those two um because they really do illustrate that you know while we all go about our daily life and walking through the city we do notice and we do we do get a sense of what meanings are being created for us so i didn't i don't know if that answered your question richard
1: yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're getting at some of the, the theory involved here. This idea of the linguistic landscape of places, I think, is, is quite powerful. You have a great quote on page 16 where you say, signs communicate not only what is inside for sale, but also who is perceived to be outside. So I was wondering if you can go a bit more into the sociolinguistic aspects of the book about the framework and the idea of what linguistic landscapes are and what are the linguistic processes that we use to try to make sense of these linguistic landscapes, uh, specifically through signs.
0: Sure. So, you know, we start with this um, with this idea of indexicality, which uh, was really well developed by Michael Silverstein, who um, just passed away last year. But he left a huge mark on the field of linguistic anthropology, um, where he um, talks about how how you know words um, are are always intertextual and they're always pointing to to different populations and to different people, and we also use um, Michael Warner, and uh, his theory where he talks about like every text picks out its public, right? Um, so texts are not created in vacuums. Um, they are never without, uh, histories. They're never without precedents. Um, and then they don't come, uh, without some connection to other texts. And that's just how we make sense of, of the world and, and of life. And so in the linguistic landscape, um, You know, as Ed was talking about, there are these two different types of signage. There's this old school signage, which is seems when we do the analysis and we um, we we say, well, what is actually on this sign and what what are they indexing? What are they pointing to Um, in this old school signage? We see that they're pointing to everyone. Everyone is included. Multiple languages are included. Multiple dialects are included. Um, Lists of every possible thing that you could want in the store is often included. And sometimes two of kind of the same category. So you know, um, you'll get um, bagels and buns, right? So it's not it's not just for the people who want bagels, but also for the people who might want buns. Um, you get this symbiosis of cultures. You'll you'll get things like um, uh, uh, halal Chinese kitchen. Um, you'll get uh, Chinese and Tex Mex. Um, Spanish and American food, right? Like, so all of this is like kind of saying that in in old school Brooklyn, that old school Brooklyn is a multiracial, multi-ethnic place where um, there is a space for everyone. And the new signage was really interesting because it always kind of left you guessing (laughs) about everything, guessing what was in the store, guessing um, what kind of... uh, food they might be serving or what products they had. It was never, not, 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 never, not never, but there was always something a little playful, um, unclear. And and then when you started unpacking the meanings of sometimes these like one words, right? So they were textually very sparse, but potentially uh, deep in meaning, right? Many, many meanings, many layers um, in these words. And, and then we started thinking about how that was an an intertextual reading process, right? Where you're supposed to be connecting this text to a whole bunch of other texts. And what were those texts? Well, often they were like history or art or literature, um, things that, you know, often, and not often, but may require college degrees um, to be able to decipher and understand. And so that was a different type of indexing, a different type of pointing um, that was seemed as if it were for a more exclusive community. Um, so so those were kind of the linguistic um, frames that we we started working with the theory um, to help us decipher what the signs were really saying.
3: Uh, yeah. And j- just to jump in, I, I just want to give a couple of examples to, to support what Sean is saying, because an old school sign will have on it something like Third Avenue Delhi. And a, a new school sign will have maybe one word that is a little cryptic and you're not really sure. And I'll just give you an example, the word habit. So you, you go from this very local placed signage that often either has a, has a name, a person's name, uh, a, a name of a business that in fact um, indicates what they are selling very clearly, You know what kind of shop it is. Uh, and then you have um, almost no indication of what's in, in the store. Uh, we started to put together systematically all of the features that were um, represented in some combination in these two sign types and when you go through the data we have about 2,000 maybe 2500 at this point in our data set of, of uh, storefronts um, we we see that they um, have a, a very consistent indicator of the of the types of uh, um, characteristics that fall into each one. So just very briefly, old school is not simply about numbers of words on a sign, but it's about really large lettering, um, very explicit references, um, very, um, clear indications of what's in the store, long lists, um, Repetition of those words, which, if you go down Fourth Avenue in Brooklyn and you pick out any given old school shop sign, you'll see sometimes repeated once, twice, three times on the same storefront information that is included on the original shop sign. Old school also has what we call ancillary signage. And for those of you who have been to Brooklyn or other parts of New York or any major city, you might you might see an ATM sign. And it's put outside of a store, not necessarily a, a deli or, or a, a grocery store, but maybe some other type of business. And they'll have underneath it a smaller sign that says $10 bills. Um, and, then, and then finally, what we see in old school is getting back to the theory side of it. Um, references that are indicating uh, a race, a class, um, uh, a religion. And these are very explicit references. And we, we didn't exactly know how to interpret how, what these references were from, from a, a sociological, cultural perspective um, until we uh, drew on the work of John Jackson, who helped, helped us operationalize the difference between the idea of authenticity and what he calls sincerity, and just very briefly, um, the idea of authentic was what we were thinking about in terms of old school Brooklyn signage. You might say that Arena Bagels was an, the authentic first, you know, type of sign. Um, but authenticity is something that anthropologists actually really struggle with, and uh, and linguists as well, because. Um, it implies, as, as uh, John Jackson tells us, that there's some kind of overarching authority that provides the authentic. In other words, anything that is claiming authenticity is kind of objectified and requires some confirmation, um, a certification, if you will. Uh, John Jackson, on the other hand, um, notes that a, a sincere, uh, explicit, um, expression of some characteristic or quality is really a subjective act. And it's, it's made between subjects that have an equity or that theoretically could have an equity. And so when, when we saw uh, shop signs that had explicit references to religion, to race and to class, we realized that these were very sincere assertions that were being done publicly on the street, um, the reason why I bring that up is because it's very different from what we see in the uh, in the what we're calling new school signage, which are representations of gentrifying um, storefronts, usually upscale places of business um, that have appeared recently. And and on those on those very minimalist storefronts, there are other types of features that are clearly systematic. Like, uh, as Shauna mentioned, there's some playfulness. There's some uh, mystery about them. And we started to realize that there was so much wordplay going on on these very like one or two or three word shops that uh, there was a little bit more um, happening than simply just a intellectual game um, or an indication of upscaleness. So I'm going to leave it at that because that really takes us to where we started to to think about what old school signage meant generally as as a collective, and maybe I'll let Shauna talk about that about the uh, capitalism without distinction.
0: So yeah, I mean, it, you know, and and people have debated that maybe that's not the right term capitalism. Um, we're not talking about like ownership of huge means of production, um, but. But what we what we see in this marketplace, in the old school Brooklyn marketplace is this idea that um, and I kind of, you know, I heard these sayings when I was growing up. Um, My money is as green as everybody else's. Um, and, and I never understood them to be racialized terms I, I and, until I, you know, started studying Brooklyn and um Capitalism without distinction is a place where everybody is supposed to be able to buy and sell, and at least that's what the signs say. And you know, there has also been some um, question about whether we are suggesting that Brooklyn was some kind of utopia, and, and certainly we're not suggesting that. We're aware of the the history of of Brooklyn and and some of the difficulties that you know, strife, racial strife, class strife that people have had in the past and continue to, but. Um, But the signs say something different right the signs say that there is a place for everybody in this marketplace and that if you want to buy something it doesn't matter who you are we'll find you something to sell um and so so you know there there is this kind of like you know as ed says there's all this reiteration um sometimes uh things are said the same things are said in different ways on the sign so there's almost this make no mistake you're, you're welcome here. Your money is welcome here. Um, this is a place where it doesn't matter who you are. It just matters that you were doing business. And that seemed to just really come through in the old school signage. And that's why we kind of started talking about capitalism without distinction this kind of idealized marketplace um, where, where you didn't have to be any particular type of person in comparison then to um, the new school signage and getting back to this idea about authenticity and um, sincerity, right. And the differences between those two words. Um, When we started thinking about these old school signs as holding space for different types of people um, where like the signs literally say, uh, you know, we do African-American hair. Um, We have Islamic hijabs. Um, We, we, we are a Catholic store. So come and get your statues here, whatever, whatever the case, um, there's always this reference to, uh, to people and their sincere identity constructions, if you will, whereas the new signs had a lot of irony in them where, and I think, you know, it, it was shocking when we started looking at, at how groups that were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestant cisgender males were being used as kind of the joke on the sign, if you will, in this ironic way. And I think that's what really helped us understand the difference between sincerity and authenticity, right? Being really sincere about who we are and what we're doing here, as opposed to using other cultural categories or organizing principles um, in a, in an ironic and kind of you know funny, meant to be funny way, which of course wasn't really funny um, and isn't funny. And and then we started asking people what they thought about uh, this usage of of certain types of groups, and um, people definitely felt that it was exclusionary, that it was um, objectifying. Uh, yeah, so. So the the signs started saying way more than than we bargained for, I think, um, when we really started doing a deep analysis and then started asking our informants in the field um, what they thought about different types of um, these two different types of signage.
2: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah, so to build a bit from this last point you made uh, about being more exclusive, in the third chapter, I believe, you get into this topic of the reproduction of social stratification in uh, the new signage, uh, especially considering how connected new signage has been playing in gentrification and in placemaking within Brooklyn. This chapter, though, especially revolves around gender, uh, specifically motherhood and its intersection with race and social class. Uh, You say that while many women are changing the landscape in gentrifying neighborhoods through stores and signage that upend conventional understandings of gender and motherhood and value, They're not necessarily being inclusive across lines of race or social class. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the the new Brooklyn mothers and the role that they're playing here through signage in gentrification and by extension, social stratification.
0: Yeah. So, you know, in, in a lot of the urban um, studies literature, you know, the, the urban centers are, are written about with this really kind of masculinist meanings attached to them. Um, people also in narratives that we acquired in our research suggested, you know, that, that women were out of place in urban centers. White women were out of place in urban centers. Um, and then, you know, I, I did come here as a white woman um, who, you know, was a professor. And so I had a, um, an identity, I guess, as a gentrifier an older one, um, I would add, but, um, and, and, and again, I mean, it was, I felt that living in Brooklyn, New York with an infant was a unique experience. I had friends all over the world who did not have this experience of motherhood that I was having where, you know, 10 or 15 women would meet in the park, uh, on a random Thursday, you know, with, with our infants. And this kind of continued through our children's schooling. And, um, and we, I saw that, um, women, uh, that, that I associated with, or that I was, um, studying, um, who were kind of of my social demographic, you know, um, college educated or even, um, advanced degrees, people with advanced degrees, were um, we're going into all of these different settings in the urban sphere whether it be the schools or the supermarkets, um, the streets and and saying things need to change around here right um, they wanted a higher better quality of foods in the way of organic food they wanted um, they wanted schools to be more inclusive of them. They wanted to have more of a say in their children's education. And, um and they definitely wanted the streets of of um, Brooklyn in in terms of cars I think that was the the biggest thing that we were working with um, pedestrian safety was was woefully lacking <laughs> in Brooklyn and so in those three areas we saw uh women trying to make a change in the city and then on the storefronts we also saw them being really bold um, from from stores like Boing, boing, um, for example, which which, you know, we talk about in the book, um, puts the cervix right on the sign. Right. Um, puts cervical caps right on the sign. However you want to interpret uh, these these kind of coy, cryptic, playful language. Um, and then at the same time, we started looking at at the press and found that, wow, people did not like uh, women taking taking these um. Making these claims to urban space, um, trying to change urban space, and so this chapter is kind of about that. It's it's about um, the problematics of of being mothers and and coming into the city and and I guess in some ways trying to tell everybody what to do, <laughs> and then um, feeling the backlash, right? feeling the backlash from different institutions, from the press, um, ab- about that, and being told, you know, hold up. Yeah, uh-huh. so that chapter is about that, and then on the signs, um, you know, we have we, the one sign that we really um, talk about a lot uh, in this chapter is, is is this sign called Baby Mama, which is racialized and and racist, and um, and so when we in in the context of this story of Brooklyn motherhood, right, people with good intentions who did want to see benefits for everybody, not just for their own children, but for all of the children that were in the school, for all of the pedestrians who walked on the street. Um, they, uh, it, was, it was difficult um, to, to try to make these changes and also suffer the backlash. And so then that's how we came to this kind of understanding of what um, Eleanor Oaks calls indirect indexicality where baby mama was kind of being used as cover to say well don't don't take us that seriously um we're not we're not really that threatening and that's how we kind of came up with that analysis of that um storefront like why use this term that in the community in the African American community is a contentious term and is not a term for everybody to use in that community and then for you know white gentrifiers to throw it up on a on a sign um without regard for what it means uh, in the Black community, needed some explaining, right? Needed some explaining. And I think that the theory really points to this idea, you know, it comes from Jane Hill and um, other people who study uh, African-American, the appropriation of African-American English, um, that that people use these terms to try to look cool, to try to look um, more at ease than than they might be or... or, um, yeah, so that, that, that chapter is kind of complicated and it is um, – it, it, it was an interesting chapter for us to, to write about. I don't know if you have anything to say about that, Ed.
3: Um, well, I, I, I will say that I, I think um, thinking about uh, when other informants of ours found out that there was a store called Baby Mama in a neighborhood in Brooklyn – uh, they were rather shocked, and, and one informant actually grimaced. And just seeing someone's emotional reaction to having a, a word that has significance in your cultural perspective out there up on a sign, which is pretty much available 24-7, um, it, it's an interesting lens to, to kind of see, and we bring it then back around to the real significance of that, um, ironic and playful and in many ways, um, uh, you know, dismissive and, um, and, and oppressive in terms of a linguistic regime that is publicly out there in terms of, of shop signs. Um, we can talk a little bit more about those dynamics and, you know, that we do cover in later chapters, but the baby mama, Example, which we juxtaposed with a store called um, uh, Boing Boing, um, shows you a little bit of the dynamics of the gentrification process in Brooklyn, and how new people came in with a with a sensibility of being political and challenging mores and and challenging norms uh, from a gendered perspective, and then kind of seeing how it goes all the way to being somewhat offensive to some uh, communities. And of course the intersectionality issues of it link up with Oaks's indexicality and indirect in- indexicality operating um, of the terms itself. So the the, the shop has a, a lot more function than simply just bringing people to attract them to the gentrification process. Um, and it is actually an assertion of of dominance. So then it becomes very puzzling to figure out how the role of women in that dominant position in in a community kind of gets played out. I wanted to add, Shauna, that um, the backlash just to give readers some example. You know, that there was a lot of um, a lot of things written about women who were simply trying to raise their children without the benefit of family kin networks. And any anthropologist would tell you that, um, traditionally women have had a lot of, uh, kin support in raising children and even in modern and and in postmodern settings. But here in Brooklyn, there are a lot of women who do not have those supports. They are juggling professional identities and, um, and that transformation was so significant that some of the census work that we did to support a lot of the, a lot of the analysis in the book, um, well, when it came to women who were educated and who were 25 years and older um, in looking at census tract data for, um, for the borough, we discovered that the number of women who had college degrees or higher from the year 2000 to 2016 practically doubled. And you're talking about like 170,000 people residents. Um, so the demographics of what was going on, and then what you see in terms of of uh, signage and and you know kind of you know cu- having a cover for a huge transformation of of culture, especially at the level of of white gentrifiers, um, w- was very interesting. And uh, yeah, that was a that was a a tough chapter to write because we were really trying to figure out exactly how this, this signage kind of operated and not necessarily in a malicious way, but clearly in, in a way that had some uh, political expression on, on multiple levels.
1: Yeah. Thank you. That's a, that's a very nuanced chapter that you have there. So moving along the, the next chapter, then chapter four, puts these more independent, uh, I guess, more mom-and-pop shop forms of signage of gentrifying neighborhoods, neighborhoods undergoing a transition, against more corporate forms of placemaking, which create these competing semiotics in the landscape over what Brooklyn is and what it is becoming. And this chapter really uses the Atlantic Yards project, which we mentioned earlier as its main example. Now, the mix of reactions to this and to other large scale development in Brooklyn through signage and landscape interpretation and misinterpretation is really fascinating. What are some of the conflicts that emerge when these bottom up and top down messages converge and compete with one another in urban space?
3: Yeah, I'll jump in here. I, um, I, I think that that story, um, about corporate, corporate signage, which we are only now touching upon is really interesting to bring up. And, and, and then to, to just look at it analytically and say, well, when you see a corporate sign, what is it that you see? Applying our linguistic approach and our cultural approach, um, it's a placelessness and it's, uh, there's a, 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 kind of an odd democracy about it. Um, in terms of its expression, in terms of what it's it's telling you, it, it's the same for everybody. When they see the sign or they see a logo, in, in many ways it's instantly recognizable. So, when when we started to really look at the Atlantic Yards project and its and its saga, circling back into the field research that we did, with our understanding now of this idea of placemaking, you see how important the um, corporate development and how extensive. That development process um, is one informant actually described it as a as just a, a express train going through your neighborhood, and some residents, um, many people of color, actually felt it was important to to get on that train and, and to support that that project. And we we opened that chapter with a vignette from a, a housing activist, pretty well known person named uh, Bertha Lewis. She was president of Acorn. Uh, For some time, and now she is the president of the Black Institute here in New York City. Um, Her story is fascinating because it shows you the confusion that people have in reading signage um, and their expectations of the future and of the society and the government in which they live. And one of the things that's pretty clear about corporate signage is there's no confusion when it comes to uh, displacing. The local in any form, and um, when we started to uh, piece together the uh, the, the different uh, factions of the Atlantic Yards battle, there there was an interesting set of fault lines where a lot of gentrifiers were were very much against this project, and a lot of long term locals who were being displaced by gentrifiers were somewhat in support of that project. Um, So in in terms of um, different elements and different aspects to understanding the, you know, the future of the borough, um, it became pretty clear that both old school and new school businesses were ultimately going to be replaced by corporate um, America and their encroachment into Um, the area. How those individual establishments battled it or how they interpret it was a little bit more complicated. Um, And also how individuals themselves positioned their experience of change in a neighborhood was also very interesting. And we we bring some of that out in in that uh, chapter as well. Uh, One thing that um, looking at uh, the Atlantic Yards area and then going historically and trying to figure out what was going on in those neighborhoods led me to the uh, New York City Department of Records, which has a, a vast treasure trove of uh, tax photos from the 1980s and also from the 1940s. And it wasn't that easy to actually work and manipulate, but um, and the quality of the photos are, are not all that great, interestingly, as, as a researcher. But the the sheer coverage of the city visually is incredible, and it's a forty year difference. And then, with our photo record from the two thousands, you could actually see three different um, time periods of the same uh, street address, you know, a block, etc. And so, I started to systematically piece together what a streetscape looked like from like nineteen seventy. At a time when, when there was a lot of um, uh, you know, uh, issues and, and problems in a divested city, uh, a city that was experiencing disinvestment and, and white flight uh, and transformation and um, interviewing people in the neighborhood who had gentrified those spaces about their original experience with that time period. Uh, was very interesting because the data that I was seeing in the photographs was not the same as what they were telling me their experience was of the past. So then, you know, you start to go even further into the past and ask, well, what did signs look like in, in other places um, in the 19th century? What, what is the relationship between public text and, and urban space um, as a history? And this chapter really didn't go too much far into that question. But even starting with the Atlantic Yards process, we ended up actually looking at the history of signage um, in, in an American city.
1: Great. Thank you. And then finally, the chapter five, the last uh, data chapter that you have, returns to Summerhill the the crown heights restaurant with the bullet holes and here you use this example of a white owner defending her decision to keep a racially insensitive aesthetic feature in the face of protest from residents in this majority black gentrifying neighborhood that has experienced much strife and pain in recent years to discuss the power of signage and language to reproduce white privilege and racial hierarchies in these communities of color, so please walk us through the details of this case and how you came to these findings.
0: Um, so this this chapter is also you know pretty nuanced, I think, in that um, we had a we we um, were put in touch with this informant. Um, Justine Stevens, who kind of led the um, the protest against Summerhill and the Summerhill um, shop in Crown Heights um, opened and suggested in their a- advertisements that they had a wall with bullet holes. The bullet holes were not uh, bullet holes. The holes were not bullet holes, actually. Um, they were, uh, I don't know, they came from a cooler that had been pulled out of the out of the um, plaster, isn't that right, Ed? I think that's what it was. They,
3: they were bolt bolt holes from shelving.
0: Yes, something like that. And um, and so the owner tried to tried to capitalize on this idea of like urban, you know, what her her preconceived notion of what it meant to be urban and to create this kind of feeling of um, thrill, maybe through the bullet holes and. Uh, the, the fake bullet holes and so she um, suggested in her advertisements that this um, was a thing and so a colleague of ours brought us a news clipping about it and then we reached out to um, Justine Stevens who was our our key informant here and um, for me it was really interesting to let let her tell us what theory and what data mattered here and um, I think, you know, it was just, it was a great exercise in white privilege for me, um, to, to look at the original, uh, you know, uh, Macintosh, Peggy Macintosh's, um, descriptions of white privilege and just overlay them right onto the case as Justine told us about it. And so that's, that's really what, uh, this chapter is about. Um, and it, it, you know, I don't know how many of those, what are there, she has 47, some, or something, um, different points, uh, that people enact on white privilege. And, uh, I don't know how many of them we actually found in this chapter 20 or so, but it, it's, it was just very interesting to see how, um, no matter how many times she was told the store owner and no matter how many ways she was told, she still wanted to do what she wanted to do. Um, and so, it, what was so illuminating to us is, is this idea that uh, at least this community, you know, at least Justine Stevens from what she and, and the people that she was with were saying was, look, we get that you're going to get it wrong and that you haven't experienced gun violence the way that this community has, but now that we tell you about it, you should do something to change it. And that was what was really fascinating, the reluctance um, to change it. I don't know if you wanted to add something there, Ed.
3: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, it 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 was not only a reluctance, but kind of a doubling down on uh, on you know refusing to concede, um, uh, not accepting any sort of blame. And uh, when when we as uh, social scientists kind of look at the data, um, and I know Shauna did a lot of work in assessing the the meeting in which and, and the dialogue in in which you could actually go through the transcript and, and see what was being said um, the uh, Macintosh um, uh, items in the backpack ha- have a lot to do with communication and public behavior and we were seeing how this was being played out by the by the shop owner in her um, intransigence and in her you know, resistance to concede even even an inch of, uh, of um, or to take any responsibility for having done something that was, uh, you know, interpreted as, as offensive. The, um, the case was um, something that came to us late in our research. And yet, as we started to see what was happening there, we realized how significant it was because Summer Hill, this, um, this uh, bar and restaurant that opened up was really only a few blocks. I mean, from from a Brooklyn perspective, a few blocks. I mean, it, maybe a, a mile or two away from the actual Arena uh, Bagels uh, that Richard you you noted starts out our book on the same street. Um, and what we were seeing also in the case of Summerhill is that the process of gentrification pushed on by corporate redevelopment with the Atlantic Yards was moving very steadily and actually very quickly, like right before our eyes during the process of doing research, um, moving from the West to East in Brooklyn. And it's a very clear pattern that, that you can see um, uh, definitely reflected in, in shop signs.
1: Right. Thank you. So, I was wanting to you just tell us quickly what the writing process was like for you when it came time to actually write the book. How did you manage that? Do, do you want to start, Shauna?
0: Well, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a messy <laughs> process.
1: We don't talk
0: anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, we, we actually worked really well together. Um, I really enjoyed writing this book with Ed uh, and, and, you know, the best way to get to know a place um I've always found is through ethnography. And so when when we moved here, I kept saying to myself, Oh, how how can I start to feel at home like in this place that I is so different and so um, you know, like nothing I'd ever been in before and it was massive. And and I started remembering other places where I'd done ethnography and I was like, Yeah, I started to feel at home there. So let's do some ethnography. So convincing Ed to do it was the first um, part of, of the process. And then when we started writing, I mean, we, there were so many different ways that we approached it, but one always stands out to me. This is the story that I always tell is that I, I have this process and, um, where I just put it all on a page and then I kind of hand it off and Ed would be like, Oh my gosh, this is a mess. What, is, what is this? But then he would take it and he would spend a couple of days with it and he would make it look brilliant and then he'd give it back to me. And then I would, you know, work further with it and do more analysis. Um, Mm -hmm. so we really had this kind of, you know, that's, that's how I think about the work that I originated. Of course there was work that he originated too, but in work that I originated, I would just like give it, just, you know, sit, sit for hours and write and write and write, and then hand it off to him and he would massage it and put it into form. And, uh, and we have a small, small place where we live. And, um, I would, I would try to make myself even smaller because I didn't want him to see me. I didn't want to have to hear him say like, what is this mess? So I would try to be really like small as I walked by him. Um,
3: yeah. And if I I can can just, (laughs) if I can just jump in there, um, the, uh, the Shauna's writing process is all about thoroughness and, and, and great description. And, and that's clear and like every detail and, you know, she's a, li- a linguist at heart in her process, As, as although m- much of her work is actually very, you know, uh, anthropological in, in approach. Um, but uh, if, if she didn't have the editor, <laughs> then the book would have been about a thousand pages long. And I, I don't think anybody wants to read that. But, but my personal um, story about, about the process is more uh, fi- finding the data to, to fit the cases and to, to find the connections in a, in a multi-method way was, was really challenging and enlightening in, in, in this project for me. We would do interviews with people in 2010, I think, Shauna, and we would come back five years later and see the significant line in that interview, which we didn't see at the beginning. And when you do read it, um, after you've done other field work, and after you've experienced other things and talked to other people, then you see how important a statement is, an utterance by an informant. And, and that was really interesting. And then the other thing that was really challenging, I think, was working with the census, which I found going back to the 70s. Uh, I was at the Some some version of the New York Public Library behind the Graduate Center, Um, and that was the only place I could find the 1970s data on CD-ROM. And I mean, what what an experience to like be putting these discs in and opening files up that you know now when we look at uh, the 2000 census, the 2010, it's American Fact Finder and, and these these, um, different, um, programs are much easier to deal with. Uh, so, you know, it, it was, it was a great experience, but it also was very, very challenging methodologically.
1: Yeah, know I'm sure it was a very big undertaking that you, that you took on. So Shauna and Ed, you've been very generous with your time, but, uh, before we finish, I was wondering if you could just tell us a bit about what you'll be doing to promote the book coming up and, Tell us a little bit about what you've been working on since it came out and anything new in the pipeline on the horizon.
0: On uh, February 23rd, we're going to be at the Center for Brooklyn History with a star-studded cast. We will be there with What's the Signs Say? And we'll be there with the founders of Black-Owned Brooklyn, Tayo and Cynthia Giwa, and also um, Peter Robinson, who is an architect and um, on the board of Black Space. So we'll be talking about um, Brooklyn, uh, and, and what the signs say on the 23rd of February on March 25th, we'll be back at the center for Brooklyn history. And we'll be there with Neil Goldberg, who is an artist, um, with, uh, Hank Willis Thomas, who is also an artist and, uh, Jeremiah Moss who wrote Manishing New York. And, um, we'll be there with what the signs say. So we're really excited about these two programs um, that are coming up.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you so much for this book. It's excellent work. Uh, I hope people get uh, get a chance to to read it, like I have. So, thank you so much for joining us and talking a little bit about it.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks, Richard, and thanks for your really generous and wonderfully constructed questions and the close read that you did. It's really exciting to talk to you.
3: Yes. Thank you, Richard, so much. I'm a big fan of your own work, and. uh... See, see a lot of uh, uh, similar themes and, and uh, subjects um, at play in your research. So thank you so much for this opportunity.
1: All right, Thank you. Take care.